tonight's thought. How can anyone say, I'm a product of the self-esteem generation when I'm constantly feeling bad about myself? There's so much talk lately, these last few years, loosely throwing around the term millennial snowflakes. You know, I want to go back to the days not that long ago when there was this vernacular debate about what to call people my age. These people who were born between the years 1982 and 2000. Before us came Generation X. Before them came Baby Boomers. What were we going to be? Well, let's see. We could call them uh, Generation Y. That that comes uh, right after X. That sounded uh, pretty logical, but it wasn't fully adopted oh we can call them the uh generation aughts right because uh you know they're coming of age within the uh, millennial and uh, you know between 2000 and 2010 they're coming of age wait a second would you just say oh millennial yeah let's just call them let's call them millennials oh, okay that's pretty good i don't know i mean i don't think whatever we would have been called whenever you start labeling something pretty quickly thereafter it becomes uh, a negative there's really nothing good to say about generation x when you describe them with that label and the same goes for millennials like they were called slackers and uh we're called snowflakes That just deflates my self-esteem. It uh, it hurts my feelings. We're from Birmingham, Alabama. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. I am your host, Mike Booty. Yes, thank you so much. For being here with me tonight in the studio. It's a Saturday evening, a beautiful spring evening in late March. As a teacher, this is the start of my spring break. And uh, the weather's nice outside. It's a little bit chilly, but it's okay. It's good enough. I've got my window open tonight. You can hear the sounds of the city behind me. If I were to turn off this music, this microphone's not really good to pick up anything that is to the side of me, but trust me, they're, they're there. I will tell you this though. I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to keep my, my, my thumb, um, on the knobs of the compressor tonight. This, uh, compressor I've got plugged into the mixer here. 
its uh, only job, which is to make sure that any sudden loud noises uh, don't just uh, blow out your eardrums and mine. Um, we know that hearing is very important these days, especially if you're listening to a podcast. But yeah, no, uh, lately just we've had this these incredibly loud, obtrusive sirens come through. And uh, it's been a little bit of an inconvenience, uh, to, to, to be honest with you. Like, I know that they're going to save people's lives. I know that's what they do. You know, these police and uh, the uh, ambulances and the, the fire trucks with their heavy sirens. I know they're going to save people's lives. But the way that they come through my neighborhood here in the city, as small as it is, there's, there's buildings all over the place and we're in kind of a Canyon. So everything around here is just like designed naturally to be an echo chamber. So a tiny little siren will carry uh, quite loudly and uh, they wake me up in the middle of the night. They've been waking me up in the middle of the night. It's actually one that I can hear far off in the distance right now. And uh, by the end of this episode, it will probably come like just barreling up. 29th street outside <laughs> these loud sirens you know i guess the the thing is like i'm not complaining again i know that they're going to save people's lives but if there's no traffic on the street i don't understand why these things need to blow their sirens oh, right i mean can't they can't they just go no a, a good example two o'clock the other night i'm woken up by this like fire truck barreling up the street from lakeview there's nobody here at two o'clock in the morning. We don't live in New York city. We are not the city that never sleeps. We're the city that sleeps. And uh, yet here they come barreling down an empty Avenue at two o'clock in the morning, blasting the siren. There's nobody on the road. And uh, man, goddamn, it's loud. You know, and I, I was thinking like, why would they do this? Why would they, feel the need to blow these sirens because surely they can get to an emergency. And if they see, you know, uh, they suddenly come to like a heavy traffic jam or just any car that's in their way, then they can start at the siren. Okay. It's just a quick flip of the switch, bud. Then they can start it. But I was thinking that when I would, when I was a kid, we would uh, take frequent field trips to the fire department. It was one of these things that was like designed to empower us as young children to uh, get out of the classroom and, and go down to the fire department. It was supposed to empower us. Really, I think what it was supposed to do is just like get us out of the classroom for a few hours so that the teacher could rest because the fire department was literally right next to my right next door to my school. So we just walk over to it and hang out with the fire people. And uh, you know, they would give us the tour around the fire station. They would like uh, show us where they hung out, where they played ping pong. And um, where they uh, where they slid down the fire pole, that was obviously a big deal, you know, going down the fire pole, because uh, growing up in the 80s, we had these, um, that was just like the ultimate thing to get on one of these things and like slide from one story down to the next without having to like walk downstairs. Of course, I grew up in a, in, in a single level home, so I didn't even have stairs. So the fact that I was like, I could like walk into a house and be above the ground was amazing to me. <laughs> and, uh, we, we had this fire pole that we would slide down, but of course we all thought it was going to be like a uh, ghostbusters where it was this gigantic 20 foot pole from the top level to the bottom. 
but it wasn't. It was a very small firehouse, and I think honestly the fire department was just there for show, like the like the Dalmatian or something. <laughs> you know, you would you you would get on this thing, and like six feet later, you were uh, you were down there. Um, <laughs> it was it was very very anticlimactic. You know, also just coming up with the idea of, uh, you know, the Adam West 1960s Batman show was on television. So we kind of thought we were going to get on it on the top floor. And when we reached the bottom floor, we were going to be like in, in, in new clothes or something like uh, maybe not like a bat cape and a cowl, but like at least maybe, you know, that f flame retardant fire suit that they wear. But no, that didn't happen either. We were still in the same clothes that we got that we were in when we when we came from the top. Anyway, and of course, you know the 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 uh, the the major thing that we also got to do was blow the fire horn, the siren. That was exciting. They let us each step into that giant fire truck, and I remember that thing being tall. Like when you're only six years old, and you're lifted into this giant truck, you know you feel like you're a hundred feet tall. They would uh, show us where it is and let us flick it. And everybody got to do so. And the whole point was, is that there may be somebody, maybe not all of us, maybe not most of us, but there may be like one or two in our, in our group, these little kids who would, uh, that would change their entire lives and they would grow up and uh, they would go through fire training school and they would, you know, try to get on with the fire department, which is a very hard thing to do. It's very hard to uh, get signed on with the fire department to get a job somewhere because you have to be very good at it, very dedicated and very physical. And uh, after all these years, could be 20 years or so, of finally, uh, you know, getting a job at a fire department, you're there on your first ride and you're going down the road and it's like two o'clock in the morning. And like, I guess like, you know, what are you going to do? Not blow the fire siren? <laughs> did a lot of things like that um in school trips to the fire department trips to the uh, police station we would always uh you know be taken out of school to like go see these people who would come in these like adults who would come in and lecture to us but they would always be funny they would be like these kid comedians these uh you know people who turned the lunchroom into like a nightclub for uh kindergartners and first graders and things Sometimes they would bring in magic. And uh, we all we all just thought it was fun. And it wasn't until years later when people started talking about millennial snowflakes that all these trips, these empowerment trips, and all these uh, kid comedian magicians would just be shed on as part of the overarching self-esteem movement of the 80s and 90s that made us all into delicate little puppies, right? And uh, made us kind of rethink everything that we'd been exposed to when we were children. Yeah, the, the, the um, that, that time, I guess, was, was uh, I, now that I think of it, there was a lot of 
dialogue going around between us, like you are unique. You are special. Just because you exist means that you are entitled to whatever you want. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you are not special, right? There was a lot of that going on. And I, and I suppose, um, you know, at five, six, seven years old, you're very impressionable. And, uh, you know, you're going to remember the most words in your entire life at that age. Um, your brain is constantly developing and, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you go, it's like called indoctrination. There's really no better way to say it. You know, adults get ahead, a hold of you with their agendas and, uh, and they just start saying it to you over and over again. You start repeating it. And then it just becomes your, your subconscious mantra kind of for the rest of your life, unless you get deprogrammed, I suppose. Um, you know, yeah, there, there were, I guess the way that the, the way that you kind of got to kids, uh, and I, and I suppose it works now, although I guess it's more through like video games now, but in the, when I was a child, uh, growing up, there was this, uh, major movement in the toy industry to give us these dolls, these toys that, um, didn't really do anything. They didn't really have a functional purpose. The only thing that they were really there for was to make us feel accepted, right? Like, like our parents had things like, um, Barbie. I mean, Barbie was still a big thing when my, my sister was a little girl, but you know, Barbie came of age in you know, the fifties and the sixties. And it allowed girls to, and some guys to live out their lives through these, through these little dolls, put them in different scenarios, right? Like put them in, in these houses or put them in cars and take them to the beach or, or go to the shopping mall or something like that. They would actually have a functional purpose. Likewise, uh, boys had GI Joes, which allowed them to, um, you know, see themselves as combat infantry, um, you know, just training them to be prepared for like a world that is full of war and conflict and chaos and uh, teaching them to act accordingly from a very young age. Okay, like these these dolls were not perfect, but they at least had a function of, you know, giving children certain scenarios. But when I was growing up, there was like a list of there, there was like a whole series of dolls that was coming out that were coming out um, that their only functional purpose was just to make us feel accepted. Um, case in point was like the Cabbage Patch Kid. Okay, uh, the Cabbage Patch Kid was uh, this kind of it was like this like plush doll. And, um, it was actually quite a boon to the Southern economy where I am because they were the, the cabbage batch, like world headquarters was in Helen, Georgia. And, uh, it was a big deal. Like my wife often talks about how she went there when she was a young, when she was a young girl and she was able to go through and like adopt a cabbage patch doll. It's very much like the build a bear workshop today where you go in and they give you like adoption papers and they allow you a little bit to like build it and things like that. So you're walking away at the end of the day with like a unique cabbage patch doll uh, that's yours. And I guess the thing is, like these kids are like, I, I guess they're orphans. Like they, that's why you're adopting them, but they're also like half vegetable or something. Um, but, you, you know, you would take these home and, and their only true purpose, like they didn't allow you to 
put yourself in certain scenarios by, you know, putting these things in those scenarios as your proxy, like you weren't putting them in like tanks or anything or, or in these like giant doll houses or putting them in cars and pretending to go like, you know, to the, to the restaurant with your friends or anything. Uh, you were just carrying them around all day long and uh, getting them dirty and your mom would put them in the washing machine and, you know, she would allow you to kind of like dry it off with a towel. And by the way, I did not have a Cabbage Patch doll. This isn't me. Okay. My sisters did. I, I didn't pretend to give this thing a bath or anything. Okay. But, um, and likewise though, there were also these care bears. Okay. So these are like little, uh, bears of different colors and they all have like patches with different symbols on their, on their bellies, like a rainbow symbol or like a, a cloud symbol or, or whatever. And I guess the idea is like when all these care bears come together, they can like defort the, defort, defeat the, the forces of evil. And they like live in the sky on a cloud and they help out the little kids below. You know, this is not like a realistic scenario. You, you can't really expect something like this in the real world to happen the way that they would with like Barbies and GI Joes. But uh, what it's teaching you is like the power of friendship. Okay. Getting all your friends together to, uh, to solve a problem. Um, not with like the patches on your chest, but like the different skills that you might have. Something like that. Like this was a self-esteem toy. Um, the most important thing for me was probably the, uh, the, my buddy doll, like the, my buddy doll was a, uh, the, my buddy doll was, was, was just this thing I got for uh, my birthday when I was either two or three years old. And, uh, you know, this thing, like you just, it's, you, it's, I would, I would call it like the imaginary friend manifested. Um, it's like somebody in New York was, uh, sitting in their big tower along with their, these other toy company executives. And they were, they were smoking cigars and they were drinking brandy. And somebody just says like, you know, my kid's got this imaginary friend. He just, uh, he just is talking to it all day long. So what if we like made that? said like, what do you, what do you mean? We made an imaginary friend. He's imaginary. I know. But what if we get like the quilts and the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the stitches and we actually just like, you know, I don't know, make this thing, put some clothes on it or something. Oh yeah. Like some overalls. Yeah. Overalls. And we give it a haircut and, uh, the kids can just drag them around so we can actually sell them their imagination. Oh yeah. That's a good idea. Um, my parents thought it would be a good idea for me. <laughs> I got this, my buddy doll. <laughs> right. This commercial is very famous. I think anybody who's my age around my age, uh, remembers the, not only the words, but the precise images that go with those words of this, uh, commercial. My buddy, my buddy, So, you know, you have, you have this kid just, uh, all he's doing is just, uh, doing stuff. He's climbing trees. He's in a clubhouse. Uh, you know, he's riding his, uh, his little, uh, I don't know, shining cartwheel thing around. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's just doing stuff, but he's got this, my buddy with him. 
And it's, again, it's designed to make him feel like he's accepted, like he's got a friend who will unconditionally love him and do whatever he wants all the time. I had one of these things from the time I was about two or three to maybe six or seven years old. And, uh, I mean, I won't say I don't miss it, you know? I mean, it was a good companion. I think the, the major reason why my mom thought this would be a good thing for me, this, this My Buddy doll, okay? And by the way, I, yes, I am aware that um, My Buddy was such a big toy that um, it, it inspired a horror movie called Child's Play, where uh, this, uh, this My Buddy-looking doll is uh, possessed by this uh, evil criminal voodoo mastermind and tries to kill this little kid and like assume his soul and all that. (laughs) So, I mean, you can't look at this thing and not think that it's a little bit creepy. Like it never shuts its eyes or anything like that. Um, (laughs) So, uh, but my parents thought this was a good thing for me because uh, when I was in kindergarten, especially uh, my mom taught at a school, she taught high school um, at a school in the country about an hour and a half away from where we lived. And so that she didn't have to spend extra money, you know, on, uh, on daycare or anything like that. Like she was able to enroll me in kindergarten, um, at the school where she taught. So she was able to bring me to school. So I went to school every day with her, but I would have to get up very early and commute an hour and a half to the country with her, which was really, I already lived in the country. So this was like deep country, Alabama, a place called Ohatchee. Okay. It's about uh, halfway between uh, Pell City and Anniston, Alabama, where I was born. So, end of the week, all these kids who lived in this uh, country community would go home with their friends and they would play and have a good time together. And I didn't have anybody because nobody was willing to drive an hour and a half to come and hang out with me for a day. So, I had this My Buddy doll. That's what I had. So, like, you know, this was, uh, this was my friend all week, all weekend long. I know. Like, don't cry for me. I'm, I'm, I'm fine now, but, <laughs> you know, but Monday would come and I would feel as if I had a pretty nice productive weekend with a friend of mine who, uh, you know, who saw things the way that I did, who saw the world the way that I did, who, uh, never got tired on me, never went to bed, never went to sleep first to the slumber party. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of, uh, for about three years or so, I had this like unconditional friendship, which, which is not something that you get much in this world. You know, friendships are not unconditional. Um, so with, with certain dolls, like my buddy, okay. Like they were, they were making us feel loved. Um, they were teaching us compassion, but they also weren't giving us anything back. And so I think this is the reason Uh, One of the reasons why so many people today are hard on the self-esteem movement that these millennials like myself grew up with. And yeah, certainly there, there, there's been a lot of backlash out there um, against these so-called millennials. I don't really care about it that much. I mean, again, like I said at the beginning of the show, anytime you give uh, 
a label to something, it's going to get ridiculed. It makes it easier to ridicule. You know, once you can just like take all of your presuppositions about a topic and boil it down to a single word, it's easy to, uh, you know, it's easy to uh, ridicule it from then on out because now everybody kind of understand what, understands what you mean. And, of course, this backlash against millennials has also spurred this backlash for millennials against what they would now label as boomers. Like, no longer baby boomers, but boomers, you know? This big statement now, okay, boomer. Like, whenever somebody wants to... Um, <laughs> wants to just explain something to a younger person. They, they get called okay boomer to encapsulate all these presuppositions of like a patronization and, and uh, condescension on the part of the older party. <laughs> See, like, you know, my, my, my kids, my, I, I teach high school and anytime it makes my job hard because anytime I try to explain something to them, they will sometimes call me, or they'll say, okay, boomer, which is difficult as a teacher because that's your job. You're literally explaining things to children all day long. <laughs> you know, you get called, okay, boomer, right? But yeah, you go on the internet. So, you know, a lot of, there's obviously all you have to do, like on YouTube, if you want to see some of these voices slamming millennials is go to YouTube and just type in, you know, millennial snowflake, comma, Dave Ramsey, or millennial snowflake comma Fox news. And it's all these old people on there that are just the, the, you know, the, the typical condescending old fogies just saying that we're all entitled, that we grew up to believe that the world owes us something. Snowflakes, right? Here's Dave Ramsey. And I want to say, by the way, I'm going to play you a little bit of this. This, this is a video is entitled, uh, your precious little snowflakes need to work. Dave Ramsey rant. Dave Ramsey is this uh, financial guru out of Nashville, Tennessee. Now, I will say that uh, he has taught me a lot about how to manage money. Um, I got out of debt largely based on Dave Ramsey's advice of, you know, snowballing, not snowflaking, but snowballing your debts, paying them off, you know, from smallest to biggest and doing it that way. And, and, and today I'm more or less debt-free, you know, just a little bit, but not much to uh, give a twist on. But Dave Ramsey can sometimes be very, very, very crude toward people that uh, are my age, more or less like people, you know, like me. Some of you haven't thought about this for your tender little precious snowflakes. Work. Junior needs to plan on working now and while he's in school. I worked 40 to 60 hours a week and got out in four years, so shut up. I don't want to hear it. And most of you that are listening to me worked when you went to college. This idea that you can be a snowflake and just hang out over there and play beer pong in between classes is nutto. Now, if you've got the money to send your kids to college and they don't, and they don't work, that's okay. I didn't make all of mine work. I had the money to pay for it, though. But you don't sit over there, play beer pong, and take out student loans because you didn't have any money. It's because you weren't working, Junior. Work. Work, 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 work. Work a lot. And don't work at some job just flopping whoppers, okay? 
Whopper floppers don't make any money. We're not, I'm not talking about minimum wage job. Go make some money, man. I mean, you can make some good money cutting grass, walking dogs, nanny, babysitting. Fancy word for it, nanny, right? I mean, you, you, can, you can make some decent bucks. 10, 12, 15 bucks an hour if you'll start watching what you're doing. And, and if you can pour it on and do some kind of self-employed idea. Some of you are pretty good with websites and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I know one kid making pretty good money just doing SEO. And he's a junior in college. And uh, search engine optimization, for those of you that don't know what that means. So, I mean, yeah, you, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. I don't care what you do, but work. Pick out a school you can afford and apply for 40,000 scholarships. At least 1,000 minimum. Oh, and by the way, Junior can work now while he's in high school and start saving up money. Why? For college. Start working for college now. That's how you get to go. That's so, you know. It's pretty silly, especially when he says, uh, some of you are pretty good with websites. Like, right? <laughs> That's what they were saying. Um, like, okay, uh, SEO, search engine optimization, for those of you who don't know, um, right? Um, you know, just seeing that he probably just asked some unpaid intern to tell him what uh, search engine optimization means. Um, I don't know. I don't want to assume things of Dame Ramsey like he's assuming things of so-called millennials, right? But but this is this is the typical um, reason why there has been such an uprising um, against uh, traditional, you know, work is because of uh, people like Dave Ramsey who think that. Um, you know, millennials don't want to work and uh, they just uh, they're they're too lazy. You know, they're wanting to spend their time sitting around playing beer pong. There's this fundamental um, missing the point that's going on here that um, I, I don't understand how people like Dave Ramsey don't understand it um, because, you know, he's a pretty smart guy financially. And maybe he does understand it, but he just is trying to bait you into clicking on the video, in which case. Well played, sir. I just you know played you for uh, myself as well as the few listeners who are listening to my show right now. Uh, you know, when Dave Ramsey was uh, in college working and getting out in four years, um, college was costing relatively nothing. Credit card companies had yet to catch on to the fact that, hey, guess what? There's like this whole uh, generation of clueless idiots out there who... Uh, if, as long as we give the when, who have never used credit before and don't understand how it can really screw up your life. Um, you know, it's like he didn't live in a time where you walked into college on the first day and there were five or six credit card companies before you even got to the registrar handing you out swag and signing you up for, uh, you know, $5 Olive Garden certificates. If you just uh, put your name and number down on a credit card application. You know, and uh, this whole thing about like working in high school, I mean, you know, again, a lot of my students work and, and they find it very helpful, but it's not something that they can really do anymore. Um, you know, working is not something like I worked in high school, but uh, now kids, there's so much pressure on kids now uh, to make sure that they are doing everything that they possibly can to get scholarships for college like he said, but it's damn near impossible to get a scholarship for college anymore or really even to get into a top flight college that you want to go to. 
um, you know, in order to get these scholarships, you have to forego employment in, in, co- in high school. Meaning that you have to take as many classes as you, as you possibly can, AP classes, advanced placement, for those of you who don't know. Uh, you know, you have to like join academic clubs, after school clubs, before school clubs to like stand out on your college application. And all of this is to hopefully get a scholarship, which will probably never come because most kids who are getting scholarships now, and I can teach, I, I can, I, I'm not, you know, I'm experienced when I say this are in a private school where they get super one-on-one attention from teachers. Uh, they get extra special care. Um, they get private tutors. You know, uh, the kids in public school now are, are not getting the attention anymore. And so I think people like Dave Ramsey are fundamentally missing this idea because he grew up in a different world than probably about 90% of Americans. I, I don't know. I mean, you could believe me or not believe me, but it's true. And, uh, you know, but yeah, but just the way he talks is, you know, why kids would call him a, a boomer. You know, but, but in recent years, though, there's been this, uh, this especially since the COVID-19 pandemic happened, um, you know, there's been this ultimate backlash against, like, not just work, but not, not just... Um, Sorry, too much work, but like work in general. And I guess what I'm talking about is like uh, a few weeks ago, one of my students, speaking to them, turned me on to the subreddit, which I, I never go onto Reddit, but he was talking about anti-work. And uh, this is something that has been coming up in the last few years of this online community of people on Reddit who are, according to my students, completely anti-work like they don't want to work at all period well looking into it that's not necessarily what it is um it's people who are protesting the way that we are typically treating work now like what we're doing with work now is like we are living to work rather than previously working to live like Economists in the 1800s, people like John Maynard Keynes, they, they, they determined, they made this determination that based on how things are going in the Industrial Revolution, you know, we, we may not even need to work, you know, as much as we are now. We eventually, maybe by mid-century, mid-20th century, we'll actually have a four-day work week because machines will be doing a lot of the labor. We'll kind of come in and supervise them and, you know, do some, you know, soft accounting, <laughs> <laughs> and then go to the beach for four days. And th- this is what they were thinking, and that's not what happened at all. Um, it was the complete opposite. Um, you know, what happened was is that the 20th century came in and started creating these bullshit jobs. You know, and these are like the the office space type jobs. You know that movie Office Space, the, uh, the cubicle jobs. Um the people who come in on weekends and are hired uh, by companies to teach about teamwork and team building exercises, these fillers, people who just have jobs so that they can literally have jobs, they're jobs for show. And um, some of us are still working. Like we never stop working. You know, we go home on Friday and we're working on weekend. This is definitely true of a, a teacher's, you know, for me, it's like the only time of the week I really get to grade papers is the weekend. 
And I, I don't teach that many students. I teach at a private school where, again, a lot of these kids are getting scholarships because I've been spending the last four years working one-on-one with a lot of them. Okay. But I think that this whole, this whole anti-work thing, though, this whole anti-work thing, okay, um, really started getting a lot of traction when, of course, Fox News got onto it. You know, Fox News is full of people, these, these, these anchors who, who love to just attach or attack anybody um, who they deem as lazy and part of, this is something they term the wussification of America, right? And uh, so they interviewed this guy a few years ago, this, uh, or no, I think this is actually just last, last year, or maybe not even that long ago, this guy named uh, Doreen Ford. And, and this went all over the place. The, this, this viral, it was, became a viral sensation. This guy, Doreen Ford, who was like this um, moderator of anti-work on Reddit. And again, you know, Fox News did their, you know, their crack research department. Uh, determined that it's just a bunch of people online who hate working and they don't want to do anything and um, they don't know how to do anything. And that that's just kind of like an excuse. Um, and so they had this interview with this guy and it just like blew up all over the internet. And my, my students were starting to talk about it too. And they, they, again, they were now, now keep in mind, my students are the last time I checked younger than me <laughs> by about 20 years. Like they're, they're not even millennials. They're, they're part of what is now being labeled, um, generation Z. Okay. Like we skipped over Y, uh, and they're Z. So they get, they get a letter and, uh, generation Z to my point of knowledge has not really been labeled negatively yet, um, by anything, but you know, anyway, so these kids are starting to, what's fascinating is they're starting to take their parents' stance, these so-called boomers of millennials, which is fascinating. So like the beating up on millennials is coming from, from both sides, but everybody started talking about this moderator getting slammed on Fox news and basically exposing the whole anti-work movement. And I was like, man, this must've been some dynamite interview just that just is so embarrassing and everything. So, and what I'm going to do is I'll I'll play the uh, whole, uh, the whole thing for you. I can turn it up in your ideal right. society. Uh, sure. I mean, I think as much as people want, I mean, I personally uh, work, I have, I have like a 20, 25 hour work weeks, which I think is fairly good. Um, so I would like less work hours. Um, and what I do think you do, Doreen? Still, uh, I'm a dog walker. A dog walker. Okay. Yes. And how, uh, yeah. So how I old are you? If you don't mind me asking. Sure. I'm 30. You're 30. Okay. And is there something you want to do besides being a dog walker? Do you aspire to do anything more than dog walking? Or is that kind of your, your pinnacle? Uh, I, I love working with dogs. If I had to do this for the rest of my life, you know, I wouldn't be super complaining. You know, dogs are wonderful animals. Uh, but I'm, I would love to teach. Uh, I would love to, um, you know, uh, work, with, work with people and well, stuff like that. What would that. you yeah. teach, Dorian? Uh, a philosophy, mostly. Philosophy. Just introduction to philosophy, critical thinking reason stuff like that okay well i would love to take your class doreen i would just be taking notes the whole time and you know what a professor is a very similar schedule than something that you're imagining so i think that actually might might work perfectly for you listen uh i think this might not be the greatest idea but who am i to judge
to each their own, they say. It's a free country. Sure. Not everything's yeah. uh, free, you know. but it is a free country. So you get the idea. It's just this uh, really, really smug Fox News guy talking to this guy. And, and by the way, the, this Doreen Ford does not really, not really presenting like the best um, image of... Uh, of what uh, he, he, you know, he didn't comb his hair or anything. He looks what you would think a, a Reddit moderator uh, would look like. <laughs> yeah. And but, but I was surprised though. That's it. That that was like a two and a half minute long interview, and this guy was just coming on saying what he he was a dog walker. He did work. He wanted to be a college professor. He wanted to teach. He maybe is not very being very practical about that path. Okay, um, but again. Uh, this guy, the, the, the interviewer, uh, Jesse Waters, just goes right into this dude with just ready to judge him, um, you know, ready to just kind of rip him apart and make fun of him. And he's just got these smug, glib um, grin on his face. You know? But yeah, my, my, my students were telling me about this and they're like, oh, Mr. B, millennials don't want to work. They're delicate little puppies. Like they were saying to the, me to this and... And it, it just confused me totally <laughs> because of how the young kids now are conditioned to call millennials snowflakes. But I, I, if I'm a snowflake, but I'm also, they're also calling me a boomer. I can't be both. What do you want me to be? It's, it's a very confusing, uh, you know, position uh, to, to be in. So, you know, like, are millennials really snowflakes? I don't, I don't know. I guess you'd have to ask them one by one, um, right? You know, I, I think, like, we just have to kind of consider the fact that uh, we are in an age where we're being asked to reconsider what it means to be a human being. It's absolutely true uh, what... Uh, the guy says in office space, you know, human beings were not made to sit in cubicles staring at computer screens. I mean, there's all this, uh, you know, research about how what we're doing, the current lives are living. You know, they're making us sick. They're making us unhealthy. They're making us uh, die early. They're making us over medicate ourselves. And uh, it, it is it is true. And, and, and it is because of like this creation of certain bullshit jobs um, but I think also what it is, is that we went in just 150 years from like working in small communities, like what we did in our work and our jobs supported like the local economy. We could actually see the fruits of our labor, but now it just seems like everything like most people do when they go to work is they support this, uh, anonymous global economy. They don't see um any real incentive to to work harder because every day no matter how little or how much they work they're always rewarded with the same exact thing at the end of the day which is going home and getting a steady paycheck at the end of every two weeks and 
And uh, it's when you look at like the giant scale of how long human beings have been working, um, this is a relatively new concept. Yet it's something that's so ingrained in people like Dave Ramsey and people like these anti-anti-work people that they can't even take a step back and say, okay, forget about the fact that we're talking to a bunch of kids with badly combed hair and hoodies with like nacho cheese stains all over them. And let's just like actually listen to what they maybe have to say. I, I, I certainly believe that, uh, that, that we're at, we're coming to the turning point. I think COVID showed us this. We're coming to the turning point in human civilization where we are rethinking the way that we work. But what I'm also afraid of is the way that like how so many companies, as soon as uh, it was okay to like unmask and go back into work with your third booster shot, we just kind of completely forgot that the conversations we were having two years ago and we all started figuring out that being virtual actually works pretty well. Working from home works pretty well. We're just forgetting those conversations ever happened. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what I am right now. I mean, you know, seriously. I cannot be both a boomer and a millennial at the same time. We have to make a choice. And I could never fail as much as I could pry my life away from all the things that constantly will undermine. It's time to go, so grab your coat. We'll leave directions there in yellow sticky notes. We got the food, we got the wine. We'll take a ride up here. It'll save us half the time. I'll almost get us there I tried throughout my life to look away And fortunate to undermine It's time to go, so grab your coat I'll leave directions there On these yellow sticky notes You got the food, I can't deny We'll take a ride up here It'll save us half the I'll almost get us there
in our minds Only in the dark It doesn't matter that we've had a few I am seeing clear I am seeing
Yeah, I was uh, looking at. Uh, I just googled the uh, word Wikipedia uh, millennials, and I came up with a Wikipedia article. <laughs> it's always fun just to like Google words and find out that there have been like thousands upon thousands of words written about that one word and the word millennial is uh has a pretty big entry on on uh on the wikipedia this is looking at it it's just got like a picture of a girl <laughs> excuse me a picture of a girl just sitting like reading a book against a brick wall like this is wikipedia oh with the uh, headphones in that's, ve that's very important headphones in oh and she's only like a couple of pages uh pages into the book by looks of uh of how she's holding it she's only got like a couple of pages flipped back but but this is wikipedia's idea of uh of what a millennial is the caption is a young woman reading outdoors in new york 2009 it's got some pictures of famous millennials, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and the Backstreet Boys. Yes. I think the Backstreet Boys would technically be Generation X, right? Like, they're definitely somebody that a lot of middle school girls at the turn of the century listen to. But I think they are Generation X. I do not think that... Any one of those guys was born during or after the year 1982. Welcome back in here to the Midnight Citizen Studio. I hope you enjoyed that music break, that musical interlude. Yeah, we had some good music there, didn't we? Yeah, we had uh, Derek Clegg was first with I'll Almost Get Us There from his album Solar. And following that was uh, Daisy May with Citizen's Arrest. Both of those songs, by the way, are, could be found on the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org, an amazing resource uh, for free music for creators run out of uh, the WFMU radio station in Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, you could, you could use all that music totally free as long as you attribute them, which I just did. So I hope you uh, check that out. You can also listen to those songs as well as all the other songs I play here. You know, like the, the backing music right there. Yeah, all that stuff is uh, um, compiled into a playlist that I will link in the show notes if you just want to, like, listen to the music and not have to hear my voice. That's totally fine. I will take no offense. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But where can you find me if you want to hear my voice? Well, you can find me over at the uh, best place is probably MikeBooty.com slash The Midnight Citizen. That's my website. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash MikeBooty where you can see me uh, on video acting the fool. I actually just got, uh, speaking of Reddit, I just got a nice message from somebody on Reddit saying like, yeah, I like your podcast, but your 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 uh, your vlog, your video is way better. Which I guess is a nice. <laughs> I, I want to. I would rather you uh, listen to the show rather than uh, watch it because when you're listening, you can be doing a whole bunch of things. 
But he said, like, yeah, man, I put this on as a TV show and just played it in the background. And that's exactly what the the show is meant to do. You're not supposed to be really... I don't really see my video on YouTube as, like, videos of my show. It's something you just, like, actively sit there and watch like it's, uh, like it's Fear Factor or something, you know? Or it's like a show you binge on the Netflix. Now I am sounding like a boomer. You know, it's just a show you put on in the background. You chill out. I don't know. Do whatever. You know, you have a beer, right? Which I'm about to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot, I just spilled some of my pants. Um, yeah, no, you, you hang out. Where else can you find me? Oh, you can also find me on any uh, podcast outlet that you listen to. iTunes, app, or, which I recently found out has been changed to Apple Podcasts right? Not the iTunes of old. Uh, you can listen on Stitcher and Spotify, all those good places. And I am also, uh, on a network with, uh, the most amazing group of other podcasters who do shows exactly like mine, just people talking. It's like butter. God damn it. Um, over at the overnight scape underground on SUG, O N S U G dot com. Yeah. Check it out. Check it out. And uh, during that musical interlude, speaking of the video, um, I was uh, playing uh, the live stream of Huntington Beach, California, the boardwalk at Huntington Beach, California. Um, This is a new thing I've been doing for the last few weeks. It's called Night Cam, uh, where I just uh, find a live stream of somewhere in the world and I just play it for you while we're listening to music together. And we can see what people are doing right now as we record the show. Um, And of course, there is a link in the description to that as well. But yeah, but I thought I would uh, choose a beach setting, you know. It's a spring break. We should be going to the beach here, right? People walking to the boardwalk, living their lives in the night in America. Okay. Yeah. So what, what, what is this whole thing about spring break? So this is... This is very much like, if listen, if you work like a traditional job, you know, you like work all year long. Um, spring break means absolutely nothing to you, probably, unless maybe you have kids and they have spring break, you know, but, but spring break is not really something that's given to you as an adult, um, unless you're like me and you're a teacher, right? As a matter of fact, like we, I didn't even start calling it spring break until probably high school. Because here in Alabama, we always just called it AEA. That that one week that you get in the middle of spring where you just don't have to go to school for an entire week and you just get to hang out and do whatever. Um, we called it AEA. It stood for Alabama Education Association because it was this idea, right? The, the, the teachers union was at one point the strongest union in Alabama, which is very much a right to work state. The state does not really support unions that much, but these educators had a very strong union. And I guess the idea was, is that they unionized. One of the rights they got was to take a week off during the middle of spring every year. So we, we just called it AA when we were kids and my mom called it that too. She was a teacher, but yeah, this idea though of, uh, this is another thing I Googled during the break. Um, this idea of, 
uh, spring break. Like where, where, where did it come from? When was like the first spring break? Um, you know, but yeah, apparently it says that it started. This may not, this may be a surprise to you. Uh, Colgate university here in the United States is where the first record of the American spring break could be traced to <laughs> Colgate university in New York city. Um, that was, uh, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, no, it, it says here. Yeah. At the very top, it says, uh, spring break is a vacation period. Um, including Easter holidays and early spring at universities and school, which started during the 1930s in the U S uh, but already existed in Europe since the late 1800s. And it's now observed in many other countries as well. Spring break is frequently associated with extensive gatherings and riotous partying in warm climate locations like Miami beach, Florida, Daytona beach, Florida, Panama city beach, Florida, Gulf Shores, Alabama, and Cancun, Mexico. You know, I always thought like Gulf Shores was a convenient place to go to uh, spring break for people here in Alabama just because it was there because Alabama is technically a coastal state. Um, but apparently, no, Gulf Shores, Alabama is like the spring break mecca, one of them of the entire Western world. <laughs> but yeah, it says here history uh, in the mid-1930s, a swimming coach from Colgate University decided to take his team down to Florida for some early training at a brand-new Olympic-sized pool in sunny Fort Lauderdale. Uh, the idea clicked with other college swim coaches, and soon the spring training migration became an annual tradition for swimmers nationwide. Now, spring break is an academic tradition in various mostly Western country that is scheduled for different periods depending on the state and sometimes the region. So that's spring break um, in America originated with a swimming coach at Colgate University, um, which is uh, definitely not where I expected it to, uh, to have originated. So, um, so there's that, you know. Yeah, mostly for me, I uh, I associate spring break with uh, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. That's what I always think about it. I always think of spring break as just this time when I'm like hanging around my house all day long, uh, not doing anything for an entire week. I'm enjoying it because I'm not in school and the day is mine to do whatever I want with it, but a week or so before spring break would happen, all the kids around me, particularly in high school, would get to talking um, about what their plans were for spring break. And a lot of those plans ended up going to the beach. And they would always talk about in high school about who they knew who was older, like their, their older sister, their older brother, their stepdad, you know, who had a condo down in like Gulf Shores where they would go and they said like, yeah, man, and they've just got like, a truck bed full of Sixers, right? And then it was like this idea that like people are going down and just having this amazing time. 
And, you know, I'm staying back at the house playing tiddlywinks, watching reruns of I Love Lucy. And uh, and occasionally, you know, of course, I would turn it on uh, to MTV because MTV in the uh, in the 90s was where you would go pretty much throughout the entire months of March and April to uh, see spring break and to get to experience it in your house. And, you know, I just had just enough self-awareness to, to realize that I felt like a loser you know, watching people have these like great times in, uh, you know, it's like MTV just associated with fear of missing out, you know, get a promo for uh for MTV spring break you know they would have it every year they would always have these uh, artists and like these beautiful girls hanging out on the beach and uh, along with these like muscle bound apex predator guys yeah. <laughs> it was just it was intimidating but god I wanted to like be there so bad I can't even tell you let's get this up spring break 1996 defines live performance with the grind featuring LL Cool J MTV rocks with the Google Dolls, Collective Soul, and Bush. Body doubles with LaBouche and Buster Rhymes. Get next to Jenny with Cypress Hill and No Doubt. And luxury options like Singled Out and Fame or Shame. It all begins tomorrow at 3 p.m. MTV Spring Break. God, man, look at that. They got that guy on the acoustic guitar, like, getting splashed with water. Oh, my God. And, like, Carson Daly was there and Jenny, Mc Jenny McCarthy. You know, just uh, all these uh, scions of, of youth in the 90s. You know, the Goo Goo Dolls. And I wanted to go hang out with Bush and sing Glycerin. And Gwen Stefani was there. God, I wanted that so bad, you know. But I was there at the house, you know, eating like um, just a bag of popcorn, <laughs> watching the grind um, and just missing out on everything and just feeling like my life will never will never be like that. I'll never get to go and do that and uh, <laughs> and hang out with these people at spring break. Right. I found this uh, clip for uh, you remember that show. Remote control um, MTV. You know, like they would have all of their shows uh, go to, you know, go to the beach and record special episodes of the beach. God dang, sorry. And uh, they would have all their shows record special episodes of the beach. And, uh, you know, they would all be like in their, you know, in their flip flops and shorts and everything hanging out in front of the uh, in front of this giant stage. And, you know, and remote control is one of these shows. This was like a. Uh, like a, a game show that sort of like rewarded kids for just like knowing a lot about pop culture. That was very much like, this isn't so much a millennial thing. I guess maybe it is like we have YouTube channels and things, but uh, one of the things that distinguished generation X um, during the nineties was just this unprecedented encyclopedic knowledge of, of pop culture television, because that was, that's what was on. The television was on all the time. It reruns like so all you did was watch Gilligan's Island the Brady Bunch leave it to Beaver like all day long and just soak up all of the knowledge and see how the episodes connected to each other and then you would get together with your friends and just have these like philosophical conversations um, about 
the existential crises of Smurfs and things like that. And I think a really good example of this, of course, is uh, presented in, again, the L Richard Linklater movie Slacker. Um, so, but remote control was, uh, was, uh, showcased that, that zeitgeist of generation X culture, just, just having this, uh, crazy, um, it was like just a jeopardy, but for pop culture. Right. So, yeah, but here's an episode. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Just a little bit, little bit, little taste of what I was missing, um, in the year 1990, um, at spring break on MTV. They both had a buck and a quarter. Still came down with 250. You think they wanted water? Jesus. There's like this like hot girl in a bikini dancing next to them. Like they always had hot girls in bikinis on MTV. Like I really don't know if any girls, women actually like watch this channel, but um, here's the host of it. Oh, I know this guy. We are again. Once again, how about a hand for our guest stars? Dr. Dre and Ed Lover from Yellow MTV Raps. The lovely Susan Ashley, the lovely Steve Drinkage, the lovely Hawaiian Tropic, lovely people from Hawaiian Tropic, and of course, conspicuous in his absence, Mr. Ken Ober. And Ken Ober wanted to be here, and he can't be here. Yeah, that's and the. Uh, that's the face of youth culture in the 1990s, Colin Quinn. Remember that? He hosted Weekend Update after uh, Norm Macdonald left. I've never really thought of Colin Quinn as like a young kids comedian, but apparently there he is on MTV in the year 1990, hosting Remote Control. What's the name of the primetime sitcom that takes place at the house next door? Are you trying to... Oh, Eric. The Jeffersons. Good guess, Scott. 227. Good guess. Okay, since you guys got it wrong, we'll be right back. And the babe will be in control, I guess. I don't know. Here we go. Keep it going. So the, the, the question he just asked was, what what show, what TV spinoff takes place next door to where the Golden Girls live? I, I don't know the answer to that. Is it Maud? No, Maud was before the Golden Girls, right? What do you say? What channel would you like it to be? Uh, channel 9 looks good to me. Okay, oh, I guess there's no democracy here. Channel 9. Channel 9. Says, Channel 9. Oh, my God. Leave out oh. Leave out the beaver. Okay, ready? Here it is. Leave out the beaver, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Biff Henderson, the beaver, Paul Schaefer, and the top ten lists. Late Night with David Letterman. That would be correct, my Woo! friend. Okay. What would you like Stick to do? Channel 9. Stick with number 9. Stick with number 9. Okay. Number nine. Maggie, the beaver. Homer and Bart. The Hawkins family. No, Eric. Oh, uh, Andy Griffith. No. Come on, Allison. I don't know. Cartoon, the Simpsons. Oh, all right. Doesn't matter. Okay. Lovely Channel 9. Okay, you're still in control, my homie. Right, because this was 1990. People wouldn't really know The Simpsons yet, would they? 
you know, you know that was that was the time that the Simpsons was really taken off, but I could see kids would not really know much about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, like uh, that the whole thing the the whole game they were playing just now was leave out the beaver. You know, because like by the nineteen nineties the word beaver had taken on quite a sexual context, right? It stands in for the uh, the part of the, the female anatomy, the vagina. It's in, it stands in for the vagina. So everybody's like saying like, oh, Wally, I think you've been awfully hard on the on the beaver, right? Like what they were saying is like, I, I think you've been awfully hard on June Lockhart's vagina, right? Let's just go ahead and just say it and grow up and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, good to be uh, good to be here again in the studio, the Midnight Citizen Studio. Still a little bit of show left. Yeah, I'm just looking around here, and you know, I have to say that I'm I'm a little nervous. Uh, you know, because I feel like someday this will all not be mine anymore. Um, you know, you know what? One of the things that they're talking about with um, millennials and work, right? Is there's this thing called uh the great resignation uh that was coined just about a year ago and uh referring to people mostly millennials who were leaving their jobs uh on mass to uh you know to do their own thing to do whatever they want not not really uh doing a typical uh job anymore and uh and i think uh I'm, I'm one of them, actually. I think I'm one of them. Um, because um, as of this week, I announced that uh, I'm, I'm actually leaving my job. I'm leaving. Te- now, I'm not leaving teaching, but I am leaving my job. And very much like that guy from the that, that subreddit moderator earlier, uh, I'm going to go teach college. So if you're a Fox News host out there and you want to interview me in a very condescending and patronizing fashion... You know, um, just comment, send me an email and, uh, and we'll set that up, you know, we'll set that up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm leaving my job at, uh, at, uh, my beloved, uh, high school that I've been teaching at for five years now, uh, for about the last year and a half or so, I've been going for my master's in English, um, at the university of Alabama at Birmingham. And, uh, uh, a few weeks ago I was offered, uh, a teaching assistantship, which essentially means that I will uh, have to leave my full-time job and and go and uh, complete my master's at at, at UAB. And uh, they actually completely reimburse my tuition, so I won't have to pay for a dime of it, which is awesome. But uh, the trade-off is is that I have to um, uh, to teach. You know, I I'll start off being a teaching assistantship and eventually teach my own classes while I'm also taking classes. Um, so I'll be teaching like these are the people like when I started college at UAB 20 years ago, um, you know, I was taught by teaching assistants. These are graduate students who come in and are getting tuition reimbursement um, and being paid back for that by uh, coming in and teaching classes and maybe getting like a little bit of stipend 
to uh, help them buy food and things like that. Uh, this is uh, typically a job that is reserved for graduate students in their 20s. Although I do understand that people uh, who are older, uh, like me, do it also. And, you know, this this is like the weirdest thing about, um, about what I'm doing because I am the kind of guy I've never had one job for longer than five years. I'm somebody who's always kind of switched around jobs. Um, and I think if I were talking to Dave Ramsey or somebody else, they would probably call me, um, you know, maybe a snowflake who can't commit to anything. And, and I don't think that's it at all. I think this is kind of the way that, you know, life is meant to be lived uh, for a lot of people who maybe don't even realize it. You know, those people who are uncomfortable in their jobs and just like working in a job because, you know, they have to pay bills or they have to pay a mortgage. You know, they have to support their families. They, they, they have to retire someday and, and they can't leave their job now or they'd lose all these benefits and everything. Um, I, I think that that's, that's uh, hostage thinking right there. And it may be a little bit of Helsinki syndrome where you're uh, trying to just like always listen to what, you know, the, your boss is saying. I think if you're miserable at a job, you, you have, you're well within your rights to probably leave it um, if you can. And this is kind of what I do. And what I do almost every single time I start a job, um, and I did this when I started the job that I'm currently at five years ago, you know, I asked myself, what do I want this job to lead to? What is the next thing I want it to go to? And uh, I do that at every single job. And I was very clear uh, to myself when I started my teaching job um, back then. Uh, you know, I said, like, in the next five years, I want to begin graduate school. I want to go back and get my master's in English. Like, I have my, I have an, uh, a degree, in, a master's degree in education uh, with, with, the, with the certification to teach English, but I don't have a full English master's. So, you know, I wanted to go back and get a full English master's. And I realized that I was going to need to essentially use my job now as a platform to do that, like be able to work while at the same time going and taking classes. But I knew that I wanted to, my next level, I wanted to go from teaching high school to teaching college. And so that opportunity came up this year and I had to take it. I had to take it. So now I'm in the position of saying, like, what do I want this thing to take me to? Well, obviously, um, I'm getting a master's. So, you know, when what I want to do is I want to teach college next. I think that's what I want to do. Um, but I would also like to eventually, you know, write books. Um, you know, I want to use the university system as a, as a, as a chance to kind of get plugged into that whole world of academic writing, of just sitting around and basically um, reading all day and, you know, uh, talking to other people about what you're reading and uh, just participate in that whole grand academic conversation that's been going on for many, many years. You know, I want to put my voice in it. And uh, that's ultimately what I want to do, right? Um, but that being said, uh, I need money. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, this, this job is, uh, comes very much with a, uh, with a pay decrease. Um, it does. So it's, um, you know, they're, they're paying my tuition, but at the same time, the trade-off is, is that I am 
getting a little bit of a stipend. So I'm going to have to basically supplement my income uh, quite a bit with it. So, you know, that's, those are the breaks, right? Them's the spring breaks, as I would say, because it is spring break. And, uh, and I'm going to be spending it uh, working, but, um, you know, that's, that's pretty normal um, for a teacher. Um, you know, this, this is one of the things that they say. There, there's this criticism of teachers um, going around out there. And, you know, one of my favorite comedians of all time who died last year, Norm MacDonald, who actually uh, <laughs> uh, preceded Colin Quinn as the, as the host of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live, you know, giving you the, the goofy fake news of the week. Uh, Norm MacDonald uh, years ago had this like uh, stand-up routine that said like, I don't really like those teachers who say that they're the heroes because for one, they get the same amount of vacation as a child, right? And and it is true. We do. Like teachers get spring break. They get these uh, summer vacations, you know? This is like, uh, you know, what adults don't get. Adults go into a job and they work it all the time. They work it from January to December. They work during the summers. They work during spring break. Maybe they get two weeks a year for vacation. If that, that's actually pretty good. You know, they, they don't get a whole lot of vacation. So people always look at teachers and say like, Oh, you get summers off. And this is very much like even some of my students have said to me, I want to be a teacher someday. Cause you get summers off. Well, as a teacher, you know, I, I know some teachers who actually do take a significant amount of the summer and do nothing or go on vacation and, and things like that. Um, it's usually because, you know, they, they have a significant other who makes a fairly a good amount of money, but everybody can pretty much agree on one thing about teachers that they don't make a whole lot. Right. And, um, this is something that happens like in the summer, we still get paid through the summer, but again, it's still not a lot. So, most of us have to use our vacations like spring break and summer to make an additional amount of money by doing things, by doing side gigs. Right. And it fits in very well right now because we're kind of in the side hustle economy where, you know, like people like me, you could do Grubhub. I like, I go and deliver food at night. Um, I tutor, like I actually have a tutor, like a couple of tutoring sessions uh, tomorrow but this, this is what we do. Like we use the opportunity to try and supplement our income and make a little bit of extra money. Right. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean th this thing though, you know, getting back to it is the, the, this criticism of teachers that we have summer off summers off, even if you understand that most of us actually use that time to work and, and find other means of income. It's, it's still kind of silly because, um, you know, with, with children here in America, we, we take them for 18 years and we put them through an educational system where we give them vacations. We give them two weeks off at Christmas. We give them one week off in the spring, um, nine to 12 weeks off in the summer. And then we take them out of school. We put them into the workforce where they don't have that anymore. And it's, it's very weird and kind of counterintuitive. And, uh, I don't understand how we haven't found this way to make, to give adults like a summer vacation, the same amount as, as, as for kids. I, I, I don't really get that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I'm looking for other ways of making money, obviously. 
I don't know if the show could be a side hustle. If you want to give me some money, you can do that. Um, <laughs> always, you know, that'd be, that'd be kind of nice. Thank you for that. Um, in advance. But yeah, it's, it's so strange that, you know, for 18 years, kids have all of this vacation time and then they are told like, sorry, now you got to work for 40 years and you don't get to take another vacation this long again until you're retired. It's just such a weird thing that we do in this country, you know, in this world, I guess, also, you know. But, th but in a way, that's that's one of the reasons I like teaching. And that's one of the reasons that I do like the gig economy. I, I like, like, I, I'll go to some of these restaurants when I'm delivering food. And I sort of say to myself, like, no, no wonder anybody, nobody, quote unquote, wants to work right now. Because people here look miserable. <laughs> they look like they want to kill you as soon as you order a hamburger from them. Um, nobody looks like they're having a good time working at these places. And the, I think the reason being is because, you know, they're no matter how hard or how, how little they work, they're making the same amount of money every single hour and they're getting to go home every night. There's no incentive really for them to work hard other than just to not lose their jobs. And so that's why I like the gig economy, because I can work whenever I want to. I can set my own hours. I can, uh, you know, you know, the amount of work that I put in is the amount of money that I get out of it. And I, I enjoy that. And I think that that's what work should be. And that's one of the things that teaching, one of the things that teaching does. Yeah, sure. You make the same amount of money every couple of weeks, but you're also given all this extra time to make extra money and do extra things. And everything, and, and and it is a very flexible job in that regard. Even though it's incredibly difficult and very stressful at times, but I've always liked it because I'm going in and like I I enjoy reading books. I enjoy, you know, analyzing fiction and nonfiction and talking about characters with people. I get to go in and do it for a living. I mean, it's a it's a really, I'm very very fortunate in that regard. I do like it quite a lot. This homeless guy was making fun of my car the other day. <laughs> I stopped to get gas. And he came up to me and started to try and have a conversation with me. And when it became very apparent uh, that I had no cash to give him, I had no money to give him, he started uh, ridiculing me. You know, he's like one of these homeless guys who has to bring you down to make him feel himself feel better. You know, <laughs> he started looking at my car and he's like, at least I'm not driving around a broke ass car. <laughs> and with that being said let's go down let's take a break and go down to that favorite place down there in the corner 
where there's always something new, something to watch. Let's take a trip down to the Video Street Video Store. What do you say? Yeah, we'll go down there, and I'll be back right after. Fly over Mars. Take a trek through a prehistoric jungle. Tour a house that has not yet been built. It's called virtual reality, and as Jay Shaver found out, all it takes is a special helmet and a glove, and you're off. You're gone, John. You're history. It's a computer-generated world where you see and move and feel. Will real life ever be the same? From ABC News, with anchors Diane Sawyer in New York, Sam Donaldson in Washington, Chief Correspondent Chris Wallace, Judd Rose, Jay Shadler, and Sylvia Chase. This is Prime Time. It was more than 100 years ago that Lewis Carroll wrote about Alice's trip through the looking glass. Now, that fiction has become a reality, or you might say a virtual reality, because that's the name of a new computer technology that many believe will revolutionize the way we live. As Jay Shadler explains, virtual reality lets you travel to places you've never been, and see things you've never seen, and do things you've never done without ever leaving the room. If dreams could be sold, what would you buy? The poet's question may soon have a practical answer. The goal of virtual reality is simple. It's total submersion, complete detachment from reality. The doors are opening on a world where the line between reality and illusion has dissolved. I want to fly over Mars. I want to experience everything the roving exploration machines experience. I want to be there. I want to explore the planets myself. Advances in computer graphics over the past 10 years are making it possible to create artificial three-dimensional worlds, complete and convincing, though they only exist in the mind of the viewer and the heart of the computer. Known as virtual reality, or VR, this new technology uses pictures and sounds to wrap around your senses. Imagine a place, and you'll be able to step into it. Conjure up a dream, and you'll be able to fly through it. It's unreal. It's different, and it's so natural that when you experience it, it's something that, uh, you know, people come out of the system and say, wow, that's unreal. Jonathan Waldern is a 31-year-old computer scientist in England. As a college student, he designed computer graphics. Now, he's launched one of the first companies to mass-produce virtual reality systems. Okay, so here we are going into virtual space, and here I want to show you a little application where We've got a car, engine. As with most VR systems, Waldron's uses stereoscopic images projected onto tiny screens inside the viewer's helmet. A powerful computer then generates the graphics and sounds needed to convince the viewer he's in another world. The illusion is completed when motion sensors in Waldron's glove and helmet allow him to begin interacting with whatever he sees. What I can do is, uh, as you can see, freely move the articles all around anywhere I like in space. Now, on a conventional computer, this would take an awful long time. Here in the virtual world, you just pick them up and move them around. The technology that created this hands-on control of an imaginary world is already being used to recreate distant worlds. There is a cliff along the horizon here. That's one cliff of Valles Marineris. There's the canyon running in this direction east. 
Michael McGreevy is a principal engineer at NASA Ames Research Center in California. Using virtual reality techniques, two-dimensional electronic pictures sent back from the Viking orbiters have been converted into a three-dimensional model of the planet Mars. So I would want to walk right around between these boulders. NASA geologists and armchair astronauts are literally exploring the universe without ever leaving home. You can extend your presence across the information domain. You can be any size, any place, at any time. There are, of course, more down-to-earth applications of virtual reality. Detailed models of city landscapes are giving urban planners a chance to redesign Main Street without ever lifting a stone. And architects can show you around your new home even before the first brick is laid. The hardest part of designing anything, including a building, is deciding what it is you want to design exactly. Professor Frederick Brooks is one of the pioneers in virtual reality. His computer science center at the University of North Carolina was partially designed with VR technology. Instead of helmets and sensory gloves, a treadmill and handlebars steer the computer. This kind of technology lets not only the architect, but more important, the client, walk together through the proposed new building and suddenly say, oh, this kitchen works fine for cooking, but it doesn't work for parties. Seem far-fetched? Try far-flung. In Japan, virtual reality is already a consumer's choice. In this Tokyo showroom, a housewife thinking about redesigning her kitchen need only slip into VR gloves and goggles. But one of the most promising applications of virtual reality is in medicine. This cancer patient has a tumor. It has to be located and then bombarded with radiation beams. Current techniques for positioning those beams are painstakingly slow and potentially dangerous. The whole technique of radiation therapy requires bringing very strong X-ray beams to bear on the tumor. The task is how do you put the beams through so that they hit the tumor and miss other sensitive parts of the anatomy, such as the spinal cord or the eyes. So Brooks and his colleagues have begun testing a VR system that takes traditional CAT scan images and turns them into a three-dimensional model of the patient's body. Doctors will be able to plan their method of attacking the tumor on this virtual patient, even before the real patient enters the hospital. So for all intents and purposes, the physician could walk around this virtual body and kind of reach up into space and align these radiation beams to zap the yes, tumor. Yes, and he sees the tumor and he sees the beams in their standard position and he reaches out and takes one and aims it until it goes through the tumor and he can look along it and see what it's hitting and what it's missing. Clearly, virtual reality now straddles that foggy boundary between fantasy and fact. Just nine years ago, a science fiction movie called Tron showed what it might be like not just to play a video game, but to become part of it. Well, Hollywood's dream is John Waldron's nightmare. At least that's what he calls this virtual world made for two, a video game where the players are on the inside looking out. Now, the boys are here. I've got a joystick. I've got a helmet. That's right. And you just put the helmet on like that. Right. And, of course, you see that you have a gun in your hand. And to fire the gun, you simply press the trigger. And I'll uh, get in and join you. OK. Come into my world, John. Linked by a computer that tracks our individual motions, Waldron and I are now both inside the same electronic world. There you are. Hi. Hello there. <laughs> the game board consists of several checkerboard platforms floating in space. The goal to chase and shoot your opponent. 
I've got the gun in my hand here. I hate to do this to you right now, but <laughs> I missed. It lobs down. We've, we've made gravity twice what it should be. You're gone, John. You're history. As the game proceeds, two prehistoric birds slip into view. If one picks you up by the scruff of your neck, the sense of flying can be all too realistic. I'm You're a little worried end. about that flying pterodactyl at this point. Oh, here comes the bird. Where's that bird? He's got you. He's got you again. Ah, he got me from behind. Oh, my god. I, I think I have to take this helmet off. I'm physically feeling the spacer for a second. Oh, my god. While I was playing the game, it seems virtual reality was playing a trick on my mind. The pictures and sounds around me were all that was necessary to convince me I was walking, flying, and falling. The visual display at the moment is crude. There are these crude, cartoon-like characters. That's not the issue. The fact of the matter is, in virtual reality, there is no limit to what we can do. We can be anywhere, anytime, any place, and uh, it's really... That's the issue. It's total escapism. Quite a game, or is it? Virtual reality had its roots in flight simulators, and today the military is a major user of the technology. American pilots plan their bombing runs on Iraq across a virtual sky, and tank commanders practiced on a virtual battlefield. We are now reaching the point where the simulations are so realistic that the line between playing a game or simulation and actually blowing people up is becoming blurred. Howard Rheingold has just published the first book on virtual reality. And like all technology, this one, he says, comes complete with a double-edged sword. There's no way of a soldier in a simulator knowing whether their commanding officer has thrown a switch somewhere, and instead of playing a game, they're bombing real people. For now, any flickering moral doubts about this technology remain hidden by its potential power and promise. Today, VR is still in its infancy, but as computers grow more powerful, the graphics more detailed, and the sensations more human, virtual reality will force us to ask, what is real? It will be up to our children to find the answer. What kind of reality are our grandchildren going to accept? Is the natural world with real trees and real rivers going to be there? Or are we going to live in 800-story high-rises all plugged into our virtual realities in which we walk through artificial forests? This might be a turning point for the human race. We might be going inward towards an artificial experience. In case you're wondering about the virtual price tag for one of these systems, right now they run from about $50,000 to $200,000. We'll leave you tonight with some more pictures from virtual reality, and we invite you to join us again next Thursday night for another edition of Primetime Live. you were to uh, come and see me 
on my birthday, September 19th in the year 1991, you probably would have uh, walked into the living room there in Moody, Alabama, where I was crashing on the sugar for my birthday cake, watching that report on virtual reality and the future of it. Yeah, that was from um, ABC News. And that's the only thing that could get me to watch the news back then is just news about virtual reality and other you know, said video games. And I find that report to be like devastatingly accurate in terms of uh, where we've come. Uh, obviously, you know, virtual reality is one of those things that kind of comes and goes about uh, every, you know, it has like these cycles. It's kind of like uh, the clown and it, you know, like every five years it appears it gets our hopes up and then it just, you know, destroys them. And we're just back to playing with stupid controls again. Uh, but I, I think, you know, th this time, uh, virtual reality, uh, may, may honestly be here to stay. I think this is like the final, uh, the final chance that it has. Um, you know, Facebook has completely rebranded itself to handle virtual reality, you know, beginning with, Mark Zuckerberg's acquirement of uh, the Oculus Rift from uh, Palmer Lucky. God, almost 10 years ago now. You know, he's obsessed with virtual reality. And indeed, during COVID, you know, they made this big jump. And they were all over the place. Mark Zuckerberg was all over the place promoting uh, the Oculus Quest. You know, trying to convince people that, uh, you know, this just, you know, this isn't just for uh, video games anymore. You know, it could be, you could go into a cartoon office uh, building and sit at a cartoon board table and meet with your cartoon colleagues. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just that that's uh, that that's kind of the idea of it. And uh, Facebook is one of the biggest companies on the planet right now. And honestly, I think if they fail, I don't think anybody will pick up after them. It's kind of like if, uh, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos just collide their rockets into each other in the stratosphere of the Earth on their way to Mars. Um, I just don't think any, anybody there will ever again be any company big enough to try this. So um, if Facebook fails um, with VR, I think I think uh, VR is done itself. You know, I just think the stakes have never been higher for it, and uh, and. You know, I've been following it a little bit lately. I've actually been thinking, like, is this the year that I finally get an Oculus Quest? And um, I just don't, the, the, it's not there yet, right, where where I just want it to be. Um, I was looking in it, and, you know, it seems like, you know, this idea of, like, the Oculus Horizons. You can actually go into a world, you can build a world for people to come and hang out in. I thought about it, like, wouldn't it be so cool if I could, like, actually do a podcast in virtual reality, you know, cause nobody's really done that yet. Uh, there, there aren't any major podcasts, you know, in the virtual reality arena, at least not that I'm any that I'm aware of. Like I, I could be the first, like this is almost like getting into podcasting in 2003, like right after Adam Curry, you know, the former MTV VJ got into it, you know, like, I could be one of those guys, the early adopters of virtual reality podcasts. And uh, I could set up, like, a little campfire, and you could come in and sit down with me, and we could talk about Dave Ramsey, 
<laughs> you know, but I just, I, I was just looking at it. It's just not where I want it to be yet. It's just, it's not, you know, it just seems to me like um, not a lot of people are on it. But then, you know, it's basically like these hardcore virtual reality people or just children, you know, children who are essentially adopting virtual reality the same way that they adopt any kind of new game console when it comes out. You know, they play around with it for a while and then they get bored with it and go do something else. Um, you know, like it's just it's going to be very, very difficult to adopt to to uh, convince adults in this world on a massive scale uh, to adopt virtual reality technology. You know, like, you know, I thought I think it would be very cool if we are going to continue this trend of like working from home, you know, and like ditching work, ditching the office life, the commute, you know, spending all of this money on gas because of the Russia oil embargo. Um, you know, and staying home and working instead, I still don't know if I can be convinced to just like go in and hang out with all of my colleagues in this, uh, you know, in this virtual space and look at them all as cartoon characters. Like, I think it's, it's a novelty. And I, I don't understand like why Facebook is really doing this. Like why they think that we want to see each other, you know, like as video game characters. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I think that's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, if they can succeed at it, then who am I to judge? I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know. You know, here, here's my here's my grand conclusion uh, for this whole episode. Right. Uh, I don't think folks my age are snowflakes. I don't think I don't think we are, you know, because these these people that grew up with me who were approaching 40 elder millennials. And, um, you know, I don't I don't know about the the regular millennials, you know, maybe the kids who grew up between, say, like, you know, I don't know, 1991, 1992 and 1999. I don't know if they're the same thing, but I, I definitely think for like elder millennials who grew up, you know, cuddling and the the Cabbage Patch dolls and the kid sisters and taking the My Buddy dolls, you know, into the trees with them and just like sleeping with them at night and all that and washing them and drying them uh, like they were little babies. Uh, I You know, I don't think it taught us to be soft because here's the thing. I think for every positive, touchy-feely, softy, thing that we had growing up there was an opposite number to just like knock it right off the shelf okay it's like for instance you know i told you already my buddy inspired the movie child's play i mean who wanted to see child's play the most you know kids who had my buddy dolls because they could relate to it they remember falling they they, they fell asleep at night with that thing sitting on their shelf just looking at them with their eyes like bugged out and looking at them like they did want a piece of their soul, right? Like, so my buddy, it wasn't like it was an unconditional relationship. No, when that thing looked at you through the night in your 
dark bedroom. Uh, you, you knew that there was a condition to it and you were going to do whatever you could to please it. You know? Um, yes, my buddy, I will bring you the cat. Uh, you know, like there's also, uh, like children's entertainment in the eighties was terrifying. Labyrinth, um, the dark crystal, the goonies, gremlins, you had this cute little gremlin named Gizmo and all of his like maniac psycho friends. The only way you could get rid of them was by like sticking them in the microwave and hitting nuke, right? Return to Oz. You remember the wheelies? You know, basically any any shit out of Jim Henson's dark mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, we grew up when when Jim Henson was still alive. Don't believe that. That guy had a sick sense of humor. And uh, he made sure that uh, he let all of us kids know about it, right? So no, I, I think like we 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 had we were pretty healthily balanced, you know, in the 1980s. We were, we're 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 absolutely these elder millennials, like people my age, and a little bit younger, grew up with a very healthy sense of what the world really is. It could be a nice, positive, happy place, but could also be really, really twisted and 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 uh, and, and messed up, right? So for any of you millennials who were born after that, after Jim Henson died, let's say, yeah, I, I really can't vouch. You, you probably are, are snowflakes. Okay. So, so, you know, get a job. I don't know. And with that being said, I want to thank you so much for joining me here tonight in the Midnight Citizen Studio. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, this has been a long show, um, and I hope you stuck through to the bitter end. But uh, if not, that's okay. You can always go back later and listen to it. I am on line at mikebooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen. Uh, also at uh, onsug, onsug.com. Right? I'm there as well. Where else am I? Um, yeah, I'm over at uh, youtube.com slash Mike Booty, where you can see me doing the show. I'm also at Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your great podcast. And yeah, that's it for me. Thank you so much once again, and I will see you next time. Keep your eyes open. Yeah.